What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where uh, we sometimes explode. Uh, Good mixing there. Thank uh, you. And, and we're doing another uh, remote episode, if you can tell. Yeah, I don't know if you can. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Uh, I can always hear the difference. Sometimes people tell me you can't. Uh, but uh, real fast, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic for The Rap. Uh, everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film. I'm a critic. Uh, and it's good to be here. Yes. And uh, we are recording remotely because, uh, as uh, some some may have already heard, uh, we've got uh, a, a bit of a, a, a COVID scare. Uh, we, yeah, were, no. we found out on my end uh, that uh, my family was... Um, uh, definitely exposed to someone who got COVID, and so in an effort to not inconvenience Whitney uh, and his family, or worse, jeopardize their health, uh, we're recording remotely just to be on the safe side. Yeah. Uh, so far, so good. No symptoms. Haven't nobody's tested positive, but uh, we're quarantining for at least a few more days until we can safely say that. So yeah. Uh, so uh, some there might be a technical snafu here. Things might sound a little different than usual, or maybe not. Maybe I'm just being paranoid. But in any case, full disclosure, that's what's going on. It's also why we were a little late. We had some tech issues when we tried to record this yesterday. Um, yeah. In any case, this is our movie review show here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, and uh, boy howdy, is it one of those? And uh, we're going to be reviewing a bunch of new releases this week. We are reviewing uh, the new Disney remake, Peter Pan and Wendy. We're going to be reviewing the action movies, Polite Society and Sisu. We're going to be reviewing the new horror movie, From Black. And we're going to be reviewing uh, the new sports biopic, Big George Foreman. Uh, the, the, as opposed to the other George Foremans. I, actually, I, that, that, I think that was actually in, just officially like his nickname. Yeah, you know, know? and I know that's a, a bit of an issue because, uh, like, identifying the correct George Foreman, because didn't he name all of his children George Foreman? He named all of his, uh, he named, uh, not all, I think most of his sons are named George, and he has one daughter who I believe is named Georgetta. Georgetta, okay. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> I love just it. for fun. Just for funsies. Yeah. I think he said something about, wait, this way, uh, whatever whatever George Foreman is going through, we're all going through it together. And that's that's kind of cute, actually. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, uh, Whitney, do you want to start with the one movie you and I both got to see together this week? Uh, sure. And that would be uh, the latest from David Lowry. Um, yeah, David Lowry, is, he did a new Peter Pan film. Yep. Uh, David Lowry is a filmmaker who... I run a little bit hot and cold on, but he's always kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, he uh, he did a movie in 2013 called Ain't Them Body Saints, which I didn't see. Mm, I missed uh, that but one I did, too. Uh, but I did see his uh, remake of Pete's Dragon, 
which I know you're very fond of, William. I'm uh, quite fond of it. It's a very different animal from the original Pete's Dragon from the 1970s, which is more of a uh, quirky uh, sort of like wacky small frontier town meets Mary Poppins with an animated dragon kind of vibe. It's got really good music in it. Um, but uh, it's an odd film, and they went in a complete... It's one of the few Disney remakes where they, apparently they had the freedom to go basically in a completely different direction. It has very little in common with the original movie, and I think it made it really magical. It's really beautifully photographed. The cast is really good. Um, I think it works really, really solid. Uh, I... I... The the things I don't and I've said this before the things I don't like about uh, his Pete's Dragon is all the fantasy stuff. Mm. Um, I think he is really good at creating a certain kind of like lush exterior. He likes to work in a certain kind of visual uh, sort of palette. Mm. And when uh, we see the the wild child just sort of out in the caves, it's actually very very comforting. And then they throw in a dragon, and it's like we didn't need the dragon. He was actually doing well enough without it. Mm. Uh, and it's implied for a little bit that the dragon might be fantastical and that would have been cool. But then they literally like make it a real dragon and the, yeah. the movie climaxes with like, they're going to get the dragon on a truck and bad guys I, want it. And that stuff's not so interesting. I, I think the very ending uh, of Pete's dragon, I think, I think it works better as a movie when the dragon may or may not be real. And yeah, when he decides yeah. that the dragon is real, I still think it comes together pretty nice, but it comes together in a much more familiar cliched Disney sort of way than I think the rest yeah. of the film. And I think it's going to come in play when we talk about uh, Wendy and Peter Pan, or Peter Pan and Wendy. But um, he also had a couple of other like indie films. He did a movie called A Ghost Story, uh, which, yeah, which really... I was really very just, fond of A Ghost Story. Really destroyed me the first time I saw it. The second time I... Well, I didn't, I didn't really watch it all again, but like the more I thought about it, the more... Uh, I think it's really elegantly crafted. I think some of the points that it comes to are a little immature, mm. but uh, it's certainly lovely. Yeah, I, I, would, I was very fond of a ghost story. I liked uh, the, the sort of the way it played with time. The idea yes. that you know, this, this, this ghost like ceases to experience time in the way human beings do because it's a ghost. Why would it? Uh, so I, I, I appreciated all of that stuff, all the weird chronological stuff. Uh, he did a really sweet film called The Old Man and the Gun, which was uh, set at the time to be Robert Redford's final movie. Uh, and it's a sweet sort of uh, bank robbers still have fun into their 80s kind of a movie. Uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, and his most recent film before this, was called The Green Knight, which was an adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the uh, medieval poem. Mm -hmm. uh, I read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight because Tolkien famously did a translation of it because it was in Old English. And uh, really didn't like that one. I, I uh, admire I so much of the of yeah. the look of that movie. Yeah, the movie was really so gorgeously photographed. Interesting visual yeah. stuff going on in the Green Knight. Yeah. and I feel like the ideas that he's contending with are. It was my the same issue you had uh, with a ghost story. I thought it was just really kind of adolescent that the yeah. ideas were incredibly basic and all of the artistry wasn't impressive enough to buoy the fact that he wasn't playing with uh, good, interesting ideas. Yeah, I'm, so I'm with he, you. He's... So David Lowry is a, a filmmaker who is really interested in visuals, and I think he might be one of those filmmakers whose 
films are going to be better the better screenplay you hand him. Yeah. But he's not going to be able to sort of tell the difference between a great screenplay or a bad one, which is ironic because he writes all his own movies. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he so. wrote this one. He, he wrote a version of Peter Pan, uh, which is not just an adaptation of the J.M. Barry film. This is one of the Disney remakes. So it actually takes a lot of its visual cues and story beats from the 1953 animated film of well, Peter it takes, Pan. Well, it takes some of them, and then it starts going off in its own direction, which yeah. I can appreciate in a vacuum. The Peter Pan is interesting mm. uh, 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 remake for Disney because they have lost Peter Pan. Peter Pan is, uh, has gone into the public domain, as I understand it, or is just about yeah, to. Yeah, in fact, the, uh, uh, the yeah. maker of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, is going to do a horror version of Peter Pan pretty well, soon. that actually makes uh, sense in that case. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be called, a, it's gonna be called a, like, Peter Pan Nightmare in Neverland or something like that. Well, He's also going to do a Bambi, because Bambi's lapsed into the public domain as well. Right, thanks. But um, Peter Pan, uh, classic, the Disney version of Peter Pan, might not be the best version of Peter Pan in film, but it is one of the most iconic. Great character designs, a really wonderful performance. I think it was Hans Conrad who played Hook, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Amazing of, uh, Hook. Amazing Hook. Great job there. Really, some really good music. Some Also some racist bits, uh, which are very, very frustrating. Mm, yeah, uh, the, uh, yeah. The actor who plays the voice of Peter Pan uh, these days... Like, he took over playing Peter Pan, I think, in the 90s. Mm. Uh, I know him. I know him personally. Oh. He's, he's he's a friend of my wife's. Oh, uh, weird. So, yeah, he, he's also uh, directed, like, a few independent features. And, he's yeah, he's been played... Like, if you've ever played, like, Kingdom Hearts, you can hear uh, this guy, Blaine. Oh. He does the voice of, of Peter Pan. That's cool. So, um, uh, so Disney is basically, uh, even though they don't technically own him anymore, it feels like they're trying to... Before they lose track of the character altogether and it becomes so public domain that they no longer have any connection to it, I think they're yeah. trying to put one last clear stamp on it. And this is a movie that very clearly could have gone, if they wanted it to, to theaters because Disney is moving away from that Disney Plus, Plus theaters yeah. model. But instead, this one has gone straight to Disney Plus. And I can kind of see why, and I'm going to leave my opinion of the movie out of it just for a second, and just say, although this is a very beautifully photographed movie, this mm. is not the big crowd-pleasing Disney remake a lot of people expect. A lot of those no, Disney remakes feel no. like we're watching like the Vegas stage show of Aladdin. Or something like just like, yeah, hey, we're well, doing this... it again and it's fun. And this is like, no, we have thoughts yeah. and it's going to be dour. It's been really frustrating that, um, especially in the case of Aladdin, uh, the remake of Beauty and the Beast and the remake of The Lion King, that they've just redone the same songs. It's the, almost the same script. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating because they're not even uh, crediting the original screenwriters uh, in some cases. Uh Peter Pan wasn't a musical, so we we don't get to have that sort of new, like a revival, Broadway revival vibe mm -hmm. to it. There were a couple of songs, but no, it wasn't like a musical and like a wall-to-wall yeah, -wall song kind of thing. Yeah, and and they, they I recognize some of the musical cues. Um, I think I've seen Peter Pan, uh, the 1953 version, but it's been so long that I recall very little about it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely been a hot minute since I've seen it all the way through, but I used but to watch I it do... a lot as a kid. Yeah, and they uh, they've taken 
some of the characters like are dressed in the same costumes as in the 1953 film. Mm-hmm. Like uh, one of one of the boys uh, wears a top hat and carries an umbrella. Like he carries that mm-hmm. while wearing his his. Uh, Was that in the original shirt. though? I could have sworn I've seen mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of other versions where the 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 kid wears the top hat. Oh, maybe so. Yeah. I think it's in the PJ. I, I thought I thought that well. came from the uh, I thought that came from the the fifty three version. I, I'm pretty sure Jim Gaffigan, uh, stand up comic who plays Smee, uh, Captain mm-hmm. Hook's right hand man in this uh, version, he's dressed a bit like the original movie. I, I assume for. Yeah, you mean the, the 1953 movie? The 1953 movie, of course. Yeah, because um, there there's so many movies of Peter Pan. There really and are. He, yeah. Here's the and and here's the ironic thing with that in constantly going back to Peter Pan, we're not growing up. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, yeah. The point the point of Peter Pan, the story, is that uh, Wendy comes from Earth and goes to this magical realm called Neverland, where time stands still. People do not grow old in Neverland. Presumably they can't die, but maybe they can. Uh, I, I, there is a, and, there's also a theory that, like, uh, the Lost Boys were, like, supposed to represent, like, dead children as well. Ooh, so maybe it is okay. kind sort of, like of this, an afterlife like purgatory for some. Maybe. Yeah, like, um, it's hard to say. It's, 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 it's yeah, definitely but, left open for some interpretation. I, I know in... Uh, Joe Wright's version of Peter Pan that was just called Pan. Oh, that uh, movie! Uh, I, I think that movie's fine. Uh, no, the, it is I'm, not. I'm, I'm the one weirdo who, who think who's kind of okay yes, with Joe Wright's weird. Pan. You're very weird. But uh, they they argued in that movie that it's it's like that temporal nexus from Star Trek Generations where just all moments in time exist simultaneously. So they go into Neverland and they're singing Nirvana even though they left like. 1890s well, London. Here's the uh, thing, and I, I think that's definitely. I think the Disney movie, the original Disney movie, did this quite a bit. I think that Joe Wright version does this, and the one movie that I feel I think avoids this, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's the best Peter Pan movie, the P.J. Hogan version, uh, with um, Jason Isaacs as Hook. But those other versions, they tend to take the story very literally. Hook is like this as well. It all—it's all real. It all really happened. The, the, the Spielberg it, movie, yeah, the Spielberg movie. Um, right. You know, there's there's all these backstories and lore and mythology, and I think, and I was watching this movie. I watched the remake with my partner in Lapis de Silva, and we were talking about uh, why we were feeling kind of disconnected from it, and they brought up some really excellent points about how the original story, as in as written. Uh, isn't entirely literal. It is allegorical. It is a story about a young girl who is on the verge of being treated like an adult. She has to move out of the bedroom where her younger brothers live. And so she envisions this magical uh, being who actually represents her. This is one of the reasons why in so many stage productions uh, Pan is played by a woman. And it, it's her in, like, this state of, like, let me just finish my thought. It's her in, like, this state of arrested development uh, where she gets to just live and be with the boys this entire time. And when she has this fantasy fulfilled where she never has to grow up, she realizes it's not actually what she wants. It's, you know, be careful what you wish for kind of allegory and this is also one of the reasons why when they go to neverland in most versions of the story although not in david lowry's which is interesting 
uh, Hook is played by the same person who plays Wendy's father. Yeah. And it's because he's the person trying to ruin the fun. He's the right. person who's he's got to watch because he's obsessed with time. He's a he's a busybody businessman. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's about Wendy. And when you literalize it and you make Peter Pan this incredibly uh, uh, important character in their own right, who has their own backstory and their own needs, uh, you really change the fundamental narrative. And the only question is, are you changing it and replacing it with something as good or better? Yeah. And because you change all you want, it just got to be good, right? Oh. And that's the question: Are you changing it to be better? And in this version, it's pretty faithful. It's pretty faithful. And then they start just sneaking in backstory until finally the backstory becomes the A story, and that's where this mm. movie really lost me. Oh well, it it becomes about Peter Pan and and, and Hook. Wendy. And, and, Hook. and yeah, and his, and his relationship with Captain Hook, and I actually liked the twist that they put in this movie. Really? Okay. Um, well, because yeah, in the stage productions, Peter Pan represents uh, Wendy's refusal to grow up, her childhood fantasy. She wants to extend that. So, uh, in the world of Peter Pan, Peter Pan is actually a character in books they've read. So it's this like character from their own literature that appears in their bedroom and takes them off to oh, Neverland, which they know about already. It would be like if somebody appeared at our our door and offered to take us to Oz, you know, something yeah. out of a book. Uh, and, you know, over the course of the movie, she realizes, Wendy does, what a tragedy is to not grow up. And that's par- an element in this movie as well. Uh, she even says near the end of the movie, you know, the, the big adventure is leaving Neverland and actually growing up and becoming mm. older. And uh, Peter Pan... That's just what adults want you to think. <laughs> That's just how we justify it to ourselves because we never had the option. You know what? It's going to happen whether you want it to or not. So you may as well. Well, that's the point. That's the point. A lot of our fantasy stories are about trying to teach us that we can fantasize all we want, but we can't change reality. And I'm like, mm. maybe we should try. <laughs> maybe fantasy stories, you know, like all these time travel stories, are about how oh, you can't change the past, or if you did, it'd be worse. I'm like. You're making that up. You could easily have said it could be better. Wouldn't yeah, that be yeah. interesting? And that could teach us to actually like be mindful of the future. So I'm just going to say this right now. Maybe we shouldn't take David Lowry's word for it. Maybe being a kid forever <laughs> would be great. Have we ever tried? Hmm. Call uh, me. Call me when you've the, tried. The, uh, I know they did that with uh, when John Favreau remade The Jungle Book. He changed yeah. the ending to that one. Uh, and Which was actually more in keeping left. with the book. It was more in keeping with the book, and yeah. I thought it was more satisfying. The idea is that oh, he's going, he's going to leave and be with his own people, and that left uh, sort of a you know a good melancholy ending. Mm-hmm. He's moving on, but he's I, I like the original ending to Disney's Jungle Book. Yeah, and, and but uh, like, and but his when, whole thing is he's just going to stay in the jungle and be cool in the jungle. Which again is from the book. Yeah. Uh, and I interviewed him uh, about and, that, and he said when he saw that ending as a kid, it made him really sad because he wanted him to keep having adventures with Baloo and yeah. and Bagheera and all the others. And so when he remade it, he got to put the ending he wanted. And I'm like, that's fair. It's your prerogative, but I don't think there's as much poetry to it. Yeah, it's it, it's not as... It doesn't hit as hard when, when you yeah. give him the, the happy ending. So maybe that's why you rarely see a Peter Pan story where they just sort of stay in Neverland. And... 
David Lowry's point, and I'm going to give away the twist because this is like the one selling point in the movie, mm. the thing that separates it from any other Peter Pan story of which there mm. are myriad. And it becomes abundantly um, clear like pretty early in the movie. Like it, it plays yeah, pretty straight uh, for about 30 minutes and then it goes off in this other direction. Yeah, uh, another big tragedy of the Peter Pan story is Captain Hook, this pirate who's living in Neverland, who also cannot age. He's stuck being a pirate. He's and stuck he's being stuck the villain. Being, he's stuck being a villain in this story. He's stuck being in constant fear of death, even though I'm not sure he can die. And uh, he's always in he a state of He can be mutilated, hates Peter Pan. Like he lost his hand while he was in Neverland, so yeah. you definitely can be injured. So I, I imagine okay. he's a little nervous about it. Yeah, he lost his hand. He replaced it with a hook, and his by coincidence, his name was Hook. Uh, I think James Hook is is the uh, extent expanded I, universe. I lore. believe that is. I believe it's like I want to say it's James T. Hook, but I think that's just me projecting <laughs> Star Trek onto it. James D. Hook. Uh, it, it's T. T. J. Hooker. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Whoa, that just blew my mind. <laughs> Captain Hook and TJ Hooker are the same character. Oh my god. <laughs> it's all falling into place. My pop culture map is completely rewritten. Uh no, uh and you know, you look at uh, Captain Hook and you just sort of see how sad he is. Now he's a mean pirate who wants to kill children. Right. So you don't have a lot of sympathy for him in a lot of productions. But uh when you see that he's sort of an analog for Wendy's father, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. This in movie this does version, not go analog for Wendy's father at all. No, in fact, he's no, very in definitely fact, uh, not. In fact, he is a personification of Peter's tragedy in this version. And this is what I like about this movie. Um, it's revealed that Peter Pan and James Hook came to Neverland together as boys. They were best friends and they ran off together. Mm. And it was James Hook who realized being a boy forever isn't fun. I, I'm eager to move on. And he left Neverland, grew up, and returned and started to play the pirate kind of as a way of extending their boyhood games. And it was partly nostalgic, but also partly a way to kind of teach Peter Pan a lesson. He kind of resented Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. And that relationship I thought was really interesting. And I think Jude Law, who plays Captain Hook, has a lot of really good moments where he's talking about Peter and he's talking about their past together and how uh, the whole Peter Pan pirate fantasy is an extension of this sort of little boy fantasy that Peter Pan is incapable of letting go of. Right. Uh, so that they're essentially play-acting this entire time. It's just that Peter isn't mature enough to understand that. Well, if Peter isn't mature enough to understand that, and also Peter doesn't realize that in in never breaking that character, he's hurting Hook's feelings. And he's, he's alienating them from the friends they ever could have been. Um, I have two issues with this. And the one I already discussed is that... Um, again, if you remove the allegory that Hook is Wendy's father, I want you to replace it with something equally potent. And this doesn't really feel that potent to me. I feel like it's pretty much implied, if not that he's like a a lost boy who lost his way, then at the very least that Hook is trapped there as an extension of uh, Peter's own story and that he is representative. I feel like that's already in there. Uh, so I don't yeah. feel like it adds much. I think it's just taking something away. But the real reason that it it, it didn't really work for me at all, because I could be like, okay, you had your take. I'm not a huge fan, but you know, Jude Law is good, whatever. The problem is, 
Hook is now too sympathetic. And there's like a well, there's like a scene towards the end. There's a scene towards the end where, you know, he's got some kids kidnapped. He's Hook. He's going to do that a few times. Um, and when he sort of unloads his baggage, you realize that like, oh, you know who I don't like at all anymore? Peter hmm. Pan. At yeah, all. Yeah. But, I, but I don't... But, I think that's I think that's the start of something great. I actually don't think they go very far with it. I think uh, it's too easy from that point on. I don't think it actually engages with the with the whole like can of worms that that opens. Um, mm. I think that once we get to the end and there's like a couple more little reveals very much at the end, um, it ultimately feels like we had like a neat idea in almost like a fan fiction kind of way or like we're writing Picard season three and we're trying to incorporate all the stuff we knew before, but like surprise you because now this is like actually from this character instead of that character. And it all feels very, what can we do with Peter Pan that hasn't been done before? Uh huh. Uh, and I just don't think they come to a particularly interesting conclusion about that. Other than makes you think, doesn't it, folks? So I was I wasn't particularly wowed by it. <laughs> so you, it sounds like it's doing the David Lowry thing, where he has like a, a germ of idea, but he's not following through. I think, I think he's so I think way. he's so busy. It's like okay, well, what if we take Peter Pan literally, not a metaphor, mm. not an allegory, an actual place, and then we extrapolate what all of these characters would be if they didn't have a vague allegorical childhood story background, but actually we're real people. And that's exactly okay. what something like Pan did, except Pan came up with this weirdly elaborate thing that was just, I, it's, it's just pure nonsense after about 20 minutes. Here, okay. I can wrap my head around it and I can appreciate that. But I think he had the idea to literalize it, but then after you've literalized it, now what is it about? And what it is about is what it was always about, but now it has fewer layers. And mm. I just don't think that's as interesting, even though there are things I like about it. It's very pretty to look at. It's a nicely shot motion picture. I'll give it yeah. that. Well, I, I I agree that it doesn't go quite as far as it could have. Also, and this is this really galls me. Mm. Uh, this whole none of none of the remakes of the Disney films have been better than the originals. Uh, for the most part, they've all been mm. just retreads or like nostalgia pieces the, the some one of them I, really really suck the one uh, i might go that far as to say and we've mm -hmm. all, we've talked about this a lot is the mm -hmm. live action cinderella which it isn't yeah. the landmark in animation that the original was because of grant campy but i actually think it tells that story better so in some regards mm -hmm. i would say that one is better than the original but uh, only okay, in some that, regards that's that's fair and um uh and yeah, we talked a lot about sort of some of them are all right. I like I like Tim Burton's Dumbo, for instance, because mm -hmm. uh, he he added this very virulently anti Disney message into this Disney film. It's very unusual. I'll uh, even go to bat for it's early and people don't usually think of it as part of the wave. Uh, uh -huh. But the live action 101 Dalmatians is a very fun family film and Glenn Close is amazing in it. I remember when people were gunning for Glenn Close to get an Academy Award she nomination. She should have. For playing Cruella de Vil in She's amazing. She, she, she is to that movie what Frank Gorshin was to the live-action Batman series. She is just absolutely Oof. killing it in every uh, frame. That is high praise. It me. is. I'm not uh, saying it lightly. Uh, so, um, 
but what you see in a lot of these movies, a lot of these remakes, is for for whatever reason, Disney has really wanted to make sure that the villains are really human. They're trying to uh, make them as sympathetic as possible. Even the the most wicked ones are given some sort of sort of backstory. Sometimes mm. it works, like in Cinderella when Kate uh, Blanchett played the wicked stepmother. Yeah. Uh, I liked her backstory, and it was very understandable, and actually made the story more interesting when we got to know her a little bit better. But it didn't forgive but, uh, her, and I think that's the thing. Yeah. Like it made what she did understandable, but it was always villainous. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But then there's entire movies that are trying to give a lot of character and texture to an otherwise uh, villainous character, like Cruella. Uh, mm. Speaking of one hundred and one dollars, or Maleficent uh, is another example. Yeah, yeah, or, or even Beauty and the Beast. Let's look at Gaston and actually like give him some backstory so we understand why he is the way he is. When you do that, you're robbing a villain character of their immediate dramatic appeal. Yeah. They're evil. They're exciting because they're evil. We understand how liberating and powerful it can be to watch an evil person do evil stuff for fun. Mm -hmm. It's the Iago effect. We don't know what motivates Iago. He says it's jealousy, but he keeps on kind of going back and forth. Maybe he's just a bad guy. Well, and in Uh, Disney's case, they're doing a lot of fairy tales. These are very simple morality tales in a lot of them. Yeah, so they're trying to to enforce that. Yeah, Have these wicked characters just be wicked. Um, Mm -hmm. And... In a lot of cases, in giving those char- these like villainous characters a really sympathetic backstory, you're kind of robbing the story of its power. There's not like a bad guy to root against if you really feel for the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did this with like Christopher Robin as well. It's like we're going to make him kind of a jerk, but not too. He's actually doing something okay, and he's really trying to well, help that, his family. Yeah, that's like, the whole well, that that whole movie is like, oh, Christopher Robin is working too hard and ignoring his family, but we don't want him to work so hard. Or for, like, a bad purpose. So we're going to say he's working really, really hard so that a lot of people don't get fired. But the problem is, now we're on his side for working too hard, and now we're mad at the family for giving him hell for working over a weekend and not spending time with them. No, he Mm. needs to work this weekend. That's actually really important. So you (laughs) overshot it, like, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so, I unfortunately, I feel like this folded, even though it's, it's the most interesting, interesting thing about the movie, this yeah. folding Captain Hook's backstory into Peter Pan's story uh, is also just another way to make Captain Hook a less interesting villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if they Disney, think Disney that if they're, if they're more sympathetic, breathed. they're more... I wonder if they think if they're more sympathetic, if they're more marketable. Like we can sell more toys or plushies of them if they're if they're more cuddly. No, I, the the thing that makes them so interesting is because they're like pointy and angular and mean and bad. You, I, I'm not you, saying it's good like, logic. I'm just wondering if this uh, is the logic they're using. I don't know. May, maybe so. I know that. Um, and I call this like like Darth Vader syndrome. Darth mm-hmm. Vader commits genocide, and yet he's sort of a, a favorite. People like yeah. the character. Because he's so powerful and scary. Uh, and over the years, all of these like Star Wars prequels and all these other Star Wars movies have tried to give a lot of character and motivation and backstory to a character like Darth Vader so we can get to know him better. No, he blew up a planet. <laughs> no matter what you do, I'm not going to be on his side. He killed billions of people to prove a point. Like he's truly this evil dude. 
stop trying to tell me how he became an evil dude. I, I, it's more I think, exciting I think, just I think having him be pro- evil. I think one of the problems with that is that at the end of Return of the Jedi, um, you know, he saves Luke's life. And Luke says, oh, I knew there was some good in you. And I think some people interpret that to mean like, ah, oh, Vader has redeemed himself. And I think, no, I think he has proven to his son that he wasn't all bad. And Luke may be convinced, but the rest of the galaxy would probably still consider him a monster and needs to pay for his crimes. He's still evil. Just the fact that his son can find a reason to love him, that's that's a Luke thing. That's not the rest of us. The rest of us are supposed to know how evil he is. And that the bad he's done outweighs the one good thing he did right at the end. Yeah, and he did it. It's deathbed conversion, isn't it? Like he... He just, you know, lived a life of evil and then right at the very end is like, no, no, no I feel bad about it. Like better than nothing, Darth, but not much, you know? A, a better ending for Darth Vader would have been if he lived and had to sort of yeah. do some sort of penance or, you know, lived out a life of, of modesty and charity. You know, I think they to, really chickened out trying to redeem Kylo himself. Ren. I think I think that Part, really, Kylo Ren, that should have been what happened to Kylo Ren, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's 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 end that cycle properly and actually like get some penance in there for God's sake. But anyway, yeah. anyway, we're off we're off the beaten path. Still Disney, but it's a different thing. Still, still Disney. Just it, it, this Peter Pan and Wendy is following a lot of the rather unfortunate trends of this whole remake slew. They're doing the Little Mermaid next, and uh, yeah, less than a month. We're okay, uh, and it it looks really great. And there's a lot of texture, and I think David Lowry did try to put at least one interesting idea in there, which I think makes it worth watching, but mostly it's pretty disposable. Yeah, that's unfortunate. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, I saw a couple of action movies, um, so I'm going to get through those. Um, Well, you know, you didn't see them, so I'm going to try to get to them with some efficiency. Uh, The first one Uh, I want to talk about is a new film from a filmmaker who... I am completely convinced is one of the best genre filmmakers working in the business, but almost nobody talks about them uh, because their movies barely get released here in America. Uh, His name is Yelmari Halander. You may know his work uh, if you're familiar with the Christmas horror movie Rare Exports. Okay. Uh, which which has become a bit of a cult uh, 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 thing here in America. Never had a huge audience, but if you've never seen it, imagine if Spielberg did a Christmas movie about an evil Santa Claus. Uh, it's gorgeous to look at, really fun characters, great action set pieces, uh, genuinely pretty creepy. Uh, I think it's a Christmas horror classic, and I love it to pieces. A few years later, he did a movie, which I'm actually surprised didn't make a, a, a larger splash, called Big Game. Uh, Big Game stars Samuel L. Jackson as the President of the United States. Air Force One crashes into, I think, the Finnish wilderness, where a young boy was on a hunting trip to sort of prove he could be a man. Go out there and hunt the biggest game you can find and bring it back. And when you bring back the biggest game, you are a man, my son. Uh, But Air Force One crashes right in front of him, and now he's responsible for protecting the President from assassins. (laughs) <laughs> and it's fun. great fun, fun. It, yeah. it's really really fun if you've never seen it it's every bit as entertaining as you as it, it sounds from that premise please see that movie it went sorely underseen uh, and now he's back with a really cool action movie called Sisu uh, S-I-S-U um, according to the movie I, I'm going to take the movie's word for it uh, it refers to they say it doesn't really translate uh, but it refers to when the chips are down 
and everything is is going wrong uh the stubborn refusal to give up and how that can lead you to do okay. great things in, uh, in what what language is that i according i think in the movie it's finnish i could be wrong okay but uh, i believe it's finnish um it the movie is a finnish movie it's from finland it takes place in lapland um so yeah, it's uh, the last few days of World War II, uh, and the Nazis are basically clearing out, and they're leaving a trail of destruction in their ra- in their wake. Uh, as they are kidnapping people, murdering people, just dropping landmines because, well, we got to use the landmines for something. Just being horrible monsters, uh, they run across an old man, a prospector, uh, and yeah, with a dog, and they accost him on the street. And with, uh, when they find out that he had just hit a, a gold strike and has had, like, a backpack full of gold, uh, they decide to steal that gold. And what they don't okay. realize is that this guy is the John Wick of World War II. <laughs> He's an old man. There are legends about this guy in World War One. He apparently killed, like, hundreds of Russians. Like, just an absolute monster. Like, completely unstoppable killer warrior. And now these guys have picked absolutely the wrong fight. But the Nazis know that the war is over. And if they survive, they're probably going to be executed for war crimes. So they got nothing to lose. They want that gold. They figured that's their their golden parachute, if you will. So this is a tight 90 minute. Oh, I love it. Yeah, uh, we're, just we're, we're getting ba- stylish we're getting murder spree. Yeah, it's we're, a we're stylish back to shorter movies. I like that. I like, I like it. Movies are I like again. it too. And this is a movie you get everything you want in a movie out of these ninety minutes. All right, I've seen. I didn't see John Wick Chapter Four yet, but I've seen the other John Wick movies. That that kind of thrill you get from it. It's a different kind of action. It's not so much shootout based. There's a lot of pickaxe deaths. Uh, there's this one really <laughs> amazing sequence where. Um, like they sick the dogs on him, and in order to get the dogs off their off his scent, he lights himself on fire. <laughs> like, it's just so completely over the top and amazing. Oh you gotta, God. you just okay. gotta stand up and cheer. Um, but like it's it's a, it's a densely packed ninety minutes, and it's every bit as thrilling as you would want that to be. And again, it's it's very simplified. Nazis are bad. This guy, uh, yeah, yeah, not a Nazi. Good. Mm-hmm. He kills mm-hmm. Nazis very much when he like. There's a bit where like they like they chase him into like a whole uh, uh, area with a whole bunch of landmines, and like one like one of them like they they're like oh well we lost him now because some bunch of the landmines blew up and they've blown like smoke and, and debris everywhere and now we can't see ten feet in front of our faces. Uh, who's the most disposable Nazi we got? Okay, walk out that way, <laughs> and. <laughs> That guy blows up. Okay, we'll send another one. That guy blows up. And then another guy looks like he's doing pretty good. And that's when our hero throws a landmine at him. <laughs> it just hits him in the head. What, like he just digs one up and throws it? <laughs> yeah, just boom. It's just totally it's awesome. It's totally awesome. It's full of absolutely just completely maddeningly fun action sequences. And also some intense stuff as well. Uh, there are some women who have been uh, abducted uh, by the Nazis, and while we don't really see it, it's implied that they've been through some very harrowing things. However, they get their moment as well. Uh, okay. It is very, very much uh, just a pure action spectacle. The action delivers. 
the characters are like the Nazis are just characterized enough that you can tell a few of them apart so that when they each get their comeuppance, it stands out that they this guy died this way and this guy died this way. Uh, yeah. And our main hero is just this really old, unkillable guy who <laughs> I just love to pieces. And I, I, I seriously, if you like extremely violent action movies, this is a very violent action movie. Um, this is the movie to see. The one other thing I will note is, uh, as I mentioned before, our protagonist has a dog. Now, a lot of people, if you're familiar with John Wick, you know that and sometimes in these movies, the dog doesn't turn out very good. And I will give them credit for knowing their audience because the the commercials that have been airing for Sisu, like online, I don't know if you've seen them, uh, show a lot of pictures of our hero with the dog and uh, promises the audience nothing happens to the dog. Like it actually says in the preview. It actually the, says in the preview, don't worry. The dog lives. The dog is fine. <laughs> the dog will not. Nothing terrible happens to the dog. There's there's a, there's a horse who doesn't make it out quite so well, and I feel like that's sort of an asterisk on that. Uh, but the dog is fine. Uh, so okay. <laughs> anyway, it's it's brutal, but it's a lot of fun, and I, I really recommend this if you're an action junkie. This has been a really good weekend this last weekend for action movies. And that continues... With the next movie I want to talk about, and I really wish you'd seen this one because I think you'd really like it. Uh, it's called Polite Society, and I mm, love Polite I, Society. I, I, very, I really very wanted, much. I really wanted to see Polite Society. I'm sad yeah. that I missed it. Yeah, Polite Society is uh, it, it's a new film from a director. Oh, I want to make sure I get her name right. I'm worried I'm going to screw it up. Uh, yeah, Nita Manzur wrote and directed it. Uh, it is uh, about. Um, uh, two young women who are growing up in uh, England, but they are uh, dealing with uh, uh, sort of social expectations um, of their own culture, including things like arranged marriage. So uh, Rhea Khan is uh, a teenager and she has a dream. She wants to be the greatest stunt woman in the world. And she is learning okay. martial arts and she is like throwing herself through plate glass and she's just training, 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 putting herself on YouTube. This is her dream. Uh, her older sister, Lena, wants to be an artist, a painter. She went to art school. She dropped out. Uh, it seems as though she may have had like a crisis of confidence. But uh, her sister really believes in her. Rhea believes in Lena. And they think she thinks they're both going to do absolutely great. And then uh, it turns out that Lena is courted by... A young man, a doctor, uh, whose mother is very wealthy and is kind of like the head of their mother's social circle. Mm -hmm. And it looks like she is basically being groomed to be his new bride. And when she says yes, Rhea completely loses her shit. Because hmm. it seems like Lena is not just getting married, but giving up on her dreams of being an artist and settling. And if Lena can do that, maybe Rhea doesn't have a future either, and everyone who tells her she can't be a stunt woman is right. And she gets it mm -hmm. into her head that there must be something wrong with this guy. This guy yeah. must be a serial killer or a criminal. There must be something wrong with this guy and some way that she can break up this marriage. And so she conspires with her uh, teenage friends 
to do things like pull elaborate heists and steal his laptop to see if they can get any dirt on him, break into his house. And for a while, it seems like it's going to be the kind of story where, okay, well, we've all learned a valuable lesson, haven't we, about growing up and how sometimes things don't work out the way you want. Mm. And then uh, I'm not going to say what it is, but it turns out Rhea was on to something, and there will be a big, giant fight sequence at the end of this movie. And I'm not going to say what it is. I'm not going to say how it turns out. I'm not going to say who's involved. No, but I think it works great. Here's the reason. I wish I could tell you more about it because what actually happens and how it actually plays out is a little broad uh, to the point that it's it's getting it's getting a little absurd. But it all connects when you find out what's going on, why, how the characters are motivated to do one thing or another. Um, It's all deeply connected to the film's uh, central theme, which is about what is expected of young women and Mm -hmm. how they are expected to set aside their dreams or become subservient or to, in, in some way lose a piece of themselves in order to grow up and how fighting against that is the right thing to do that is a take yeah. is it's it's definitely a take of someone who is very young and someone who and i think the movie is very affectionate towards a lot of aspects of Rhea and lena's culture but i also think this is clearly made from someone who is young and has definite opinions about the evolution of a woman's place in society and how it yeah. needs to grow from where it has been. And I think once you see where the movie is going and how everything plays out, you realize that it's all fundamentally about that. And even though it gets gets a little absurd and maybe there's a more realistic version of this movie that would be uh that would also work. I think okay. the version that we got is really really wonderful and a very sort of Edgar Wright kind of way where we're playing with a genre that we're familiar with but we're taking the characters who are involved seriously and we're looking at them from a different thematic perspective than we're used to. And that really elevates it. And on top of that, it's just really wonderfully acted. The action sequences are really, really fun. The costumes and the set design is really, really nice. Um, I'm just incredibly fond of it and I hope everyone sees it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this may be a bit of an... Uh an odd comment, but I've seen a lot of stories like this about um, where we're getting a lot of stories about uh, arranged marriages that in the modern day where, uh, or uh, like a lot of sexism and uh, women being oppressed, uh, but they're still set in the modern day. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see a lot more of of those kinds of stories to come out of American cultures. It seems like a lot of American studios are turning to non-American origins for these stories. And I feel like there's this strange alienating quality to that, that uh, it's like we have to like here, here in the United States, everything's kind of hunky dory. So we have to other certain cultures in order mm-hmm. to get a lot of like uh, sexism back into the story. And I feel like, you know, we, we still grow it at home yeah. rather, unfortunately. So um, you're not wrong about that, but to be yeah, fair, this is, this is from a, a, a British Pakistani filmmaker. Yeah. No, telling I, I, a story not, about the culture that she's very familiar with. So I think, I think it's yeah, earned I'm, at this one. Uh, no, I, I think, I think, I think they've earned the their right key. to tell this story. I think that's yeah, for sure. I, yeah. 
Uh, no, I think it's definitely earned in, in most cases. I think these are very uh, earnestly told, well-done movies for the most part. And I'm talking about mm. a, a very general genre here, uh, mm. or just type of storytelling, type of story. Uh, I, I don't... My complaint is I don't just don't see it from the United States enough. We need uh, more. We need the, a stronger wave of feminism in these kinds of films. Yeah, yeah. R- yeah. Rather than either telling sort of modern versions of medieval fantasies or leaving the United States in order to find these kinds of of, uh, of stories, I, I would like to see a, a criticism of what we got here because there's still plenty to criticize. Well, that's very true, and I suspect, given the political situation in which we currently find ourselves, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and mm. plenty of other things to choose from. Um, I suspect a lot of people are going to have a lot to say about that. And the movies work kind of slow. Yeah. You know, a a major event, political event, or life-changing world event can occur, and it takes time to write that. It takes time to produce that. It takes time to put that through post-production and then release it. And so sometimes the immediate reaction to something won't be felt, at least intentionally, uh, you know, there may be films that just happen to key into that, uh, but it won't necessarily be felt intentionally for potentially a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, there's definitely some things that are brought up in polite society that I think are going to resonate now more than they would have a year, year and a half ago. Uh, but there's also, I think, a lot of stories to be told about the current wave of oppression going on specifically in America. But I also want to see the international side of that too. And I feel that mm-hmm. al- although um, it's not unheard of to, to take that tack. Um, I also feel like we still, unfortunately in the Hollywood entertainment industry, although some strides are attempting to be made, uh, there's still too much of a monoculture and I want more films like polite yeah. society i definitely want more films like yeah. polite society so um, uh, that, that's that's totally fair and and yeah. I, I i don't want to sound like i'm poo-pooing the fact that something like polite society is made i'm happy it got made uh, yeah. i haven't seen it i can't speak to whether or not i liked it or or, or disliked it but uh I, i'm happy it exists and i really want to see it and it looks great yeah. i think uh, you'd really like it yeah. i think you really like uh, it. it was it was just you know me we sort of noodling about a few ideas about no. uh, what I'm not seeing in theaters. No, I agree. Pontificate away, sir. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. And in fact, why don't you participate into uh, the latest film from Shudder? That's right. Uh, uh, pay attention to Shudder. Uh, whether or not they're making great movies, they're, they're trying a lot of interesting new stuff. Uh, they're importing a lot of films from overseas. They're uh, producing a lot of independent horror movies. Uh, there's a lot of really strange, wonderful things going on over at Shudder. Uh, from Black isn't all that unusual. It's maybe one of their less ambitious uh, distributed movies, but uh, it's uh, a really stirring tale of mourning. Uh, it's... Uh, a, a woman played by an actress named Anna Camp uh, has lost her child recently. She lost her uh, eight-year-old because he, he went wandering off and 
she uh, didn't know what happened to him. He just disappeared. And now she has turned to drugs. Uh, the child's father has gone, not just turned to drugs, but he's become just this horrendously horrible person. Uh, they've separated, and now they're just sort of going through mourning while all, and she's also trying to recover from the addiction that she's brought upon herself. So she's not in a good spot. Everything's really horrible for her at the beginning. And at one of the grief counseling meetings she goes to, a group therapy, she's approached by uh, this older guy with a beard, and he says, Hey, I've, I've heard all of the mourning that you're going through. I was going through it, too. And you know what? I actually talked to this old mystic, and I know how to bring your son back from the dead. Oh, and that's so course, convenient. Yeah, it's like, Oh okay. my god, yes, let's do now, that. It's suspicious right away, because this guy is clearly, like, beleaguered and sad and horrified by everything. So, like, clearly he didn't, like, resurrect his own child and is fine now. Something bad is happening Sometimes dad is better. <laughs> I love the way you said it. It's like, I, I can see you, like, clipping off the end of a cigar when you say that. Uh, <laughs> sometimes dead is better. Um, yeah, it, it, the, this character is named Abel. He's played by an actor named John Ailes. And the bulk of the movie, it's told sort of in flashbacks, so we get to see, like, after what happened with the main action of the story and we're introduced to the character and she's splattered with blood and she's crying and a cop says, it's not her blood, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, but the bulk of the movie, like most of the middle section, is just the ritual they have to go through to bring her son back from the dead because, of course, she agrees. Mm. Uh, Wouldn't be and, much of a movie if she didn't. And it's a days-long process and she has to go through all these weird... Uh, trials. She has to like sit in a in like a circle of salt while this guy reads not just a few passages but an entire book to her. Uh, and you know when she's done, she realizes that she's uh, levitating and doesn't realize doesn't know how. Then she has to start again the next day. One of the trials, and this is pretty horrible, is she has to watch her like she goes into this like mystical headspace and she has to watch her son die. Like she. Yeah. She finds out what happened to him, but she has to, like, watch him suffer and, like, all of it. And it turns out he was abducted by a killer, and so it's all really harrowing to, nice. to view. And over the course of this ritual, we realize that this guy, Abel, is actually communing with a demon. And this demon can bring the child back. Well, Also, the demon needs, like, it, it's sort of implied that the demon needs a host so that this guy is not just trying to bring the son back, but also pass the demon onto her and that it follows kind of away. Okay. Uh, he's trying to get rid of the, the evil magic. The demon itself, they're really going for a They're trying to go for like a Hellraiser vibe or like Hellraiser by way of Guillermo del Toro. Like it's this, this weird looking thing with spikes and you can't see its mm. eyes. Does it look uh, cool? Is it like really good makeup? I, the makeup is fine. I wish they were more creative with the design. Uh, a lot of this kind of thing is going to live and die by the creature. And I feel like they they kind of dropped the ball a little bit on the creature. It's like, oh, that, that looks like, uh, it looks like a movie demon. Right. Uh, which, you know, if it looks like a movie demon, like you look at the Cenobites from Hellraiser, those are striking monsters. There There aren't other monsters that look like that. I think a lot of filmmakers haven't even tried to recreate the Cenobites. It's like, 
it'll be too obvious that we're just ripping yeah. off the Cenobite. And whenever you do it, it's very, very clear. Like, there's a couple of, like, monsters in Cabin in the Woods who are very clearly yeah. their version of the Cenobites. And it's like, well, yeah, they were, we know. Those were clearly modeled on the Cenobites. Uh, that's my point. It's like, yeah. it, if as soon as you get a bunch of characters wearing, like, bondage leather and they're very pale and they're, like, kind of, like artfully mutilated and have like cool like you know like the 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 filleting instruments are still on their body mm-hmm. those are cenobites there's the, it was so distinct from the beginning that you could never rip it off basically yeah yeah and, and i yeah. wish more horror movies try tried to do that more deliberately they really tried to uh make monsters that will stand out Rather yeah. than just make monsters that are it, merely scary, it's hard to do. To be fair, like how many like how many monsters have been created for movies that feel genuinely like? I mean, nowadays we might be used to them, but when the monster was created, it felt genuinely out there, like the Blob, hmm. or yeah. um, or or Alien classic example right there there was nothing oh, there like alien go, yeah. before alien and then we see an alien and we're like oh my god that's in my nightmares forever now that's a very distinct <laughs> creature but then there's a lot of other mm-hmm. movies or like belial i think from uh, basket case is another one of those but then there's a lot of creatures who are like that's a perfectly creepy creature but um what else you got yeah yeah you know um there's a there's a fun passage in uh from black where they're talking about the movie finding nemo Okay. And it, it the able character posits that uh, the movie is a fantasy from the father's perspective. Mm. And that because Nemo means no one in Latin, he's not looking for anyone. He's put a... He lost his son and now he's like put a goal on himself to try to find this thing that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a fun sort of an... Like, Sure. Almost Tarantino-ish, like, analysis. Of That's a very Tarantino-ish analysis, yeah. And you know that there would be, yeah. like, some people are going to watch this movie and that's going to be their take now. I'm like, no, that's what <laughs> Nemo was really about. Like, no, that's a projection of the narrative and yeah. the characters within it. I don't think that's actually what it's about. But anyway. It, it, it's not. It's it's a fun interpretation. It's, it's, like, when, it's, it's like at the end of Kill Bill when Bill says, like, you know, Superman was never really Clark Kent. No, that's just what Bill believes. That's actually not a very good mm. reading of Superman as a comic. That's <laughs> it's, that's just it's it's a read, and I think it's, it's fine it, to to have that agreed. back in the conversation. Agreed. I'm just saying. I I've heard people like spit that out at me, like that exact same speech, uh-huh. as if like that this is the only true reading of that of Superman. The, this is just I heard that once and it made sense in the narrative and I just buy it now and I'm like no it's art there are so many subjective readings and that's just the one you heard in this movie because it reflected how that character sees things and now we understand how they project themselves onto art and we've learned a lot about that character from that which is great I just always bothers me when it becomes like the thing we believe because I saw that when I was 15 and still getting my ideas together and I've done yeah. that too well, I'm not. I'm not. Is... I'm throwing myself under a bus here. I did silly stuff like that too. Oh, absolutely. I think we all do that as as young people, teenagers, even in our twenties. Um, and in fact, to go back to uh, Peter Pan, mm. that's a lot of what the Disney remakes are doing. A lot mm. of uh, 
online pundits sort of find a very basic read about a Disney animated film, and that becomes sort of the the dominant take about it. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the remakes are not addressing something that's wrong with the story in any kind of way. They're addressing, like, Reddit posts and these uh, sort of ubiquitous takes on certain uh, certain aspects of Disney films and trying to undo them and take the curse off of them when really it's not a problem. Uh, I don't... The whole, I, um, I think a few of them have, been, have dealt with actual problems. Like, for example... Uh, films like Aladdin or The Lion King have been able to replace like weirdly predominantly. Cast. Yeah, really, really nice. th- yeah. that demanded a diversified cast in the first place. It never should have been a non-diversified cast. So that's that is addressing an actual problem. But mm-hmm. a lot of like the basic general like reinterpretations of the story feel a little arbitrary. I'll grant you that. Yeah. 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 Uh, but anyway, so uh, how, how, how uh, I got, I got you off track from um, the movie. I got you off track from the movie. Yeah. But you were talking about the monster. No, uh, yeah. the monster's fine. Uh, the thing <laughs> After I all that, from... monster's fine. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I appreciate about From Black, and the, the reason why I kind of like it, it's not a great movie, but I kind of like it, uh, is that it's uh, because it keeps on flashing forward to the present after everything has kind of gone pear-shaped you realize that there's there's no hope in this story, that it is just a story of desperate grieving and how that doesn't lead to anything. Mm. That uh, is not going to uh, lead to any kind of catharsis. All it's going to lead is additional sadness. And the demon, of course, represents this... It sort of argues that if, if you give into it, grief can be a permanent part of you. Uh, so I, I think there's some interesting ideas lurking in this otherwise pretty average horror movie. Mm. All right, well, uh, last film, I guess, on our docket uh, is a new biopic of George Foreman. It is directed uh, by George Tillman Jr., who I feel does not get enough credit. Uh, He's been responsible for some very big movies in the last 20 years or so. Uh, He directed Soul Food, which is, uh, I think, a bit of a classic. Uh, He Mm. produced the Barbershop movies. Uh, Most recently before this, he directed a very excellent adaptation of the novel The Hate You Give. Oh, that was a pretty uh, good movie. Yeah, yeah and, and in the middle he made some... Like, he, he did a biopic of the Notorious B.I.G. He did an action movie with Dwayne Johnson called Faster, which is pretty fun. He did... I, uh, he did, Faster. I saw the I saw yeah. the, the Biggie movie, though. Yeah, he did He did a, a really melodramatic Nicholas Sparks movie called The Longest Ride. Uh, so he's a very uh, malleable filmmaker. I think he's one of those guys who seems to be able to tackle anything. Uh, and uh, his latest is another biopic. It is the biopic of George Foreman. If you're unfamiliar with George Foreman, if you're not a sports uh, enthusiast, uh, George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world in the 1970s, and then again in the 1990s when he became the oldest heavyweight champion ever at the age of 45. Hmm. It's an interesting and odd career that is very much not a conventional underdog story the way that Hollywood likes to tell it, especially in a sports uh, milieu but like if, if you're familiar with um the way a lot of very celebratory biopics work there's a lot of biopics mm. they're made with the uh, permission or the involvement of the family and so even if they tackle some of the more difficult elements of their protagonist's lives they tend to exist to create a heroic almost a deified narrative to uh, cement their place 
in in the lore of popular yeah. culture. Uh, you see that with films like uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that in films like uh, Walk the Line or Elvis. Uh, okay. And if you've ever seen the movie Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, uh, you can't really watch one of these films, even the good ones, the same way again, because you realize just how easy it is for Hollywood to reduce an entire life to a very, very simple formula. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like about Big George Foreman as a movie is that for the first half of the movie, it's hidden all those beats super hard. It is mm-hmm. aggressively familiar in every aspect of its production in terms of like how it introduces the characters and uh, the relationship, uh, Foreman's relationship with his mother. Uh, George Foreman is played for most of the movie uh, by an actor named Chris Davis. I think he does a very good job. Uh, George Foreman uh, transformed not just as a person, but also physically a lot throughout his life. Mm-hmm. And I think Chris Davis does an excellent job of capturing that. Um, uh, Sonia Sohn from uh, The Wire and also uh, Step Up to the Streets plays his mother. Okay. Forrest Whitaker plays his uh, his coach, um, and uh, a great actor named Sullivan Jones plays Muhammad Ali, who had a very okay. larger than life personality. If you've ever seen any clips, or if you've ever seen that Michael Mann movie with Will Smith, you'll you know just he was a very the dude oh. just belonged in front of a camera. <laughs> you, so you know Muhammad Ali. <laughs> he was so eloquent. He was so funny. He was really just charismatic. And that's absolutely not what George Foreman was. George Foreman was not that guy. Mm. George Foreman was not, you know, an eloquent, funny, you know, superstar. He was a very serious, committed guy who could punch like nobody's business. And he found an outlet for that after having some difficult, uh, making difficult decisions in his Youth ends up in uh, you know some criminal enterprises, uh, tries to make something of himself, can't quite deal with his anger, and then finally he meets uh, Forrest Whitaker's character, and he helps him channel his anger into boxing. Sure enough, he becomes a gold medalist in boxing, and then he starts a heavyweight championship career, and he becomes a heavyweight champion of the world, and then most movies would find a way to end with the biggest match of the of the person's career right or at least like a, mm. a at least someone that's like notably significant right uh there is perhaps no more significant match in george foreman's career than the rumble in the jungle but here's the thing and this is no spoiler this is one maybe the most famous boxing match of all time he lost that one and he lost mm. in such an epic fashion that there's a name for it, and the name <laughs> refers to him as a dope. Like, he mm. fell for a really, really heavy-handed strategy. And it destroys his career, it destroys his confidence, his marriage falls apart, and then, after being incredibly conventional, the movie switches genres. And when he finds Jesus... The movie becomes a Christian movie, a very Christian movie. As he finds Jesus, so too does the film. And it's a very uplifting story about a guy who turns his life around and he doesn't want to box anymore. And like 
Forrest Whitaker looks at him like kind of horrified. Like, okay, I'm glad you found Jesus. And it's like, that's great. But you're still one of the biggest boxers in the world and we can get you some matches and we can get back on top again. And he's like, no, I want to be a preacher now. And Forrest Whitaker's like, shut up. No, I really do. I just want to be a preacher now. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't understand you anymore, man. But he did. He became a preacher. And then after a while, he, for financial reasons, felt the need to get back in the ring. That's a whole long story I'm not going to get into. The movie does a perfectly good job of it. And he became, in his mid-40s, a serious boxing contender again. And even though like he worked out and he was still, he was still in great shape, now he was a large, old, bald man. And I love mm. this one moment uh, after, in like, his first match in the ring... After he gets all of his, you know, gets back on top in a training sequence that turns the movie into a broad comedy for a little while. Mm. When he wins his first match, there's a guy in the audience is like, give it up for old bald fat guys. And I'm watching this and I'm <laughs> and I'm in my 40s. Right. And I'm watching this and I'm and I'm I've got a pretty big bald spot and I'm and I'm not thin, <laughs> nor have I ever really been. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's fucking awesome, actually. Good for you, man. And that's the cool thing about this movie, is that I think this movie understands that George Foreman's career was not typical. And it had weird twists and turns. And rather than go overboard trying to like force George Foreman's life into a very tidy structure, they just kind of mm. have to run with it. And so when his life changes its structure entirely, so does the movie. Um, hmm. I wish it was more I wish it had that overwhelming emotional kick a lot of the better sports movies do especially sports biopics mm. uh, it doesn't really ever feel truly transcendent but I I and and again if you're if you're willing to accept because George Foreman to the best of my knowledge doesn't have like a lot of huge scandals over him or anything like there's I don't know too many people who think he's like a jerk mm. um so I, I'm not super upset at this movie for treating him real nice. They do a lot of things. They like condense his first like three or four marriages into just one marriage, uh, which is, <laughs> and, I, and I even think they like gave her like a name none of his wives had, which is a weird choice. Mm -hmm. um, but that's part of that's just we're condensing it for a movie, but yeah. also really makes him look like he had was more successful in marriage than he actually was. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's that. Uh, but I gotta say, like, if you just like George Foreman, if you appreciate what he did in his career, uh, I think you'll like this movie fine. I don't think it's a okay. particularly great movie, but I think it's it's nicely acted, uh, and it doesn't play out exactly the way you expect it to from the first half. I respect that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it's not great, yeah, but it's pretty good. You said it turns into a Christian movie. Um, Man. Th th there's many, many ways to do that wrong, as we've seen. Oh, yeah. Uh, like sort of uh, movies that steer away from filmmaking and go just full bore into kind of evangelical proselytizing. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how does it handle that? Is it like frank about a guy's faith or yeah. is it trying to convert people? It's not trying to convert people. And I think that's a really, really good... Because there's no one like... 
against him for it. A lot of people don't get it, because, like, I don't see why you have to throw away your boxing career for this, but okay, mm-hmm. like, good for you, I guess. Uh, but there's no one saying, like, yeah, you shouldn't be a Christian, George, or that's bad, you're bad, it's bad, like, you know, there's mm-hmm. no, like, there's no martyr syndrome over it. Uh, there's, it's, it's kind of haphazardly set up earlier on. There's a couple of bits where, um, you know, they're, they're eating at the dinner table and they have a very meager dinner. They're like all sharing like one hamburger. Uh, and his mom insists that they say grace. And George is kind of rolling his eyes at that because he doesn't feel particularly thankful for how little they have. And then later on in the movie when he's rich and he's able to like afford a, a, a bounty for his extended family and they have a very large dinner together mom insists on saying grace and they start saying grace and it's like yeah i god didn't pay for this food i did mom so mm. when he finds jesus that's basically him just getting over his aversion to christianity but it's not really heavy-handed about it it's not about converting a lot of people about it it's basically he found this thing, it really meant a lot to him, and we can't make a movie about this guy without dealing with the fact that his conversion to Christianity wasn't just, now I believe in God and I go to church every Sunday. I quit a heavyweight boxing career in which I was the champion of the world mm-hmm. to become a preacher and to like really do the work, like preached on like street corners and stuff. And, like, opened up, like, youth shelters and things. Like, he he put in the work for it. Mm. And I think the movie is relatively matter-of-fact about that, but it can't be matter-of-fact about his life without acknowledging how much Christianity meant to him. So, I felt, even as someone who, again, I'm an atheist, even as someone watching the movie who who does not subscribe to what George Corman subscribes to, uh-huh. Um, I never felt condescended to. I never felt like okay. anything was being shoved down my throat. I never felt like the movie uh, was being used to convert anybody. Um, it's just, and now this is a story about someone whose Christianity, whose faith means a lot to him, and we're going to embrace that because he did. And okay. I think I think it was pretty good. I actually really do. Okay. I think I think even if you're not of that faith, I think he was technically a Baptist. Um, even if you're not of that faith, I think it's still, we, we actually just talked about this in an episode of We've Got Mail, when Christian movies, uh, when movies can be less overtly Christian while still having Christian themes. And I think this is yeah. actually a pretty good example of that, where if you're not interested in that aspect of it, then you can just view it as an element of this biopic. But if you are Christian and this, that's an important part of George Foreman's story to you, I think you'll find that it's handled rather well. And it okay. is not shied away from. They're not pretending that that's not an important part of his career. It takes up a huge part of the film. Mm. All right. So, yeah, I think I think they I think they find a good balance. Yeah, I, I I know there's there's ways to do it where it's just not not tasteful, I guess. Um, yeah, but, sure. Uh, yeah. No, no. There's definitely so, ways so to I'm, do it where you, you just mm. get really heavy handed. Yeah, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm more interested in movies that talk about faith in sort of a more practical way. Mm-hmm. Or in a philosophical way, uh, ones that present Christianity as like a solution are not appealing to me. Yeah, and this is not a this is not like a solution. Uh, there is definitely some stuff towards the end where, like, you know, maybe George Foreman's. I, I think it was his his the last woman he married. I, I don't know. Mm. I, I don't have his biography memorized. Um, 
but she's married to him while he's a preacher and when he goes back into boxing where she actually has like a vision of him being a heavyweight champion and like they don't overplay that that might just be you know her having a, a dream in the middle of the night and they take it too seriously but so that's that's a little arch that suggests mm-hmm. that maybe it was meant to be but somehow yeah. they managed not to overplay that either i think they do a decent job of it okay yeah sounds good <laughs> Alright, anyway, uh, let's do a review roundup uh, This is where we look back over the films that we reviewed this week And review them on a scale of C- to C+. Uh, the best a movie can be is a C+, that is above average Those are movies we genuinely recommend or think are amazing uh, C is an average motion picture Some good, some bad, just kind of okay across the board More for one audience than another A C and a C- minus is below average. Those are movies we don't recommend or think are just absolutely terrible. Uh, on that note, Big George Foreman, I'm going to give it a very high C. Uh, okay. I don't think it. I don't think it ever really like becomes emotionally resonant enough to emerge out of a C. But I think that it is competent across the board. A few highlights, uh, and definitely not bad. Uh, let's see. What do we got? Uh, From Black. From Black, I'm, I'm going to give a C. Um, I, again, I wish the, the scares were a little bit deeper. Uh, I wish the monster were a little bit cooler. Uh, but I appreciate that it stays on this note of, like, sort of inescapable grief. It's a very sad movie, and I, I really admire that. All right. Uh, Polite Society, I'm giving a big, big, big C+. Uh, wonderful personality, great new cast, uh, a fantastic blend of action, comedy, cultural commentary. Um, it feels like it came from someone who had something they wanted to say in a very entertaining way to say it. So yeah, I, I highly I recommend really, it. I hope everyone checks it out. I really want to see that one. I'll, right. I'll, if, if I get around to it, I'll, I'll mention it. Please do. Uh, next up, uh, Sisu from director Yelmari Halander. Also a C+. Uh, a bit more straightforward, I think, than Polite Society, which has like a lot of subtext and things. Uh, Sisu is basically Nazis are bad and this guy kills a lot of them because they <laughs> fucked with him and they yeah. shouldn't have done that and they get what's coming to them in a very violent over the top way the action <laughs> kicks ass uh, the storytelling is it's it's simple but it's very very clean it's very very effective um, it's nicely shot like everything about this movie works and on top of it all 90 minutes <laughs> A beautiful ninety-minute experience, you, and it feels and it feels like there's nothing left out. You get you get everything you want from the movie in ninety minutes. It's great. Love it. All right, and then lastly, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy Whitney. Uh, I'm going to give it a C. I, th- okay. I think there are definitely things worth seeing in it. I and mainly for those oh, ideas I was talking about about the relationship between uh, Peter Pan and Captain Hook. It looks good in, this is maybe a strange comment, it looks good in a predictable kind of a way. It's predictably good looking. Uh, it looks like it looks like a David Lowry film. Yeah, yeah. It uh, looks like, it's, it's no, very no green. There. It is very mm. green. That is I, I, clearly I, David fine. Lowry's favorite color. I'm just saying. Like, I, if you've seen his movies, you know the, he loves green. I, I think the green is fine. He made a gr- movie with green in the title, for goodness sake. Um it's yeah, mo- mostly kind of predictable, not hugely unexpected, but just unexpected enough for me to find something I could like get my fingernails into. Yeah, uh, I wish I liked it that much. I think there's definitely it's not a wash, 
Again, I think mm-hmm. it's really nicely photographed. I think some of the cast does a good job. But ultimately, I just feel like this isn't a very interesting take on Peter Pan. I don't mm. think it's particularly thrilling as a fantasy story. I don't think it's particularly meaningful. In fact, I think by making the changes they made, they've had a lot of the meaning sucked out of the movie. And as a result, it feels weirdly and frustratingly disposable to me. Uh, okay. So I'm going to give it a that's, very that's, high C minus. That's that's fair. I I, yeah. I see your point, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm cool that you like. A lot of people like this movie a lot more than I did. That's totally fine. For me, it's a very high C minus. It's made with craft. I just don't think it amounts to very much. Uh, and ultimately, I don't think it's really quite like broadly entertaining enough to justify that it doesn't amount to very much. It's, it's clearly trying to be about something uh, very potent, but I think the overall approach they took to the material just isn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week at the review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which that's ironically right. is the fourth one, because I think the Christmas special mm-hmm. counts. Uh, well, and but, also that the characters yeah. showed up in other movies, so yes. their story has been told through through over the course of a lot of different films. But yeah, yeah. this is it's the one that they're calling Volume Three. Yeah, and other things as well. Uh, we'll see if I get COVID, and if I don't, I can go out and see some more <laughs> movies. Otherwise, I'll see what's on streaming and do the best I can. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we couldn't do this. Uh, if you want to sign up and become a patron, if you have the means, we'd love to have you. You get a lot of bonus shows about everything from every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, every movie ever nominated for Best International Feature, every episode of Star Trek ever. And if you sign up at that tier, there's like like 200 episodes already there for you, just instantly, like instant value. Enjoy that. We've got commentary mm-hmm. tracks. We just did one for the original animated Lion King. Uh, We've got Discord Hangouts, a whole lot of stuff over there. And, of course, you can listen to all of our regular release shows without ad interruptions. So I I think that's good. You should do Uh, that. Please do. Uh, But, again, if you can afford to, we'd love to have you. And if not, thank you anyway. Please subscribe if you haven't already. means a lot to us. Leave us a review if you haven't already. That really helps the show. Uh, And, um, yeah, and, of course, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode... Or just anything in general, you can always email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, you can send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Sobel. And never forget, everyone. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.